you today. Uh, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 987. And the letter is rapidly coming to a close as Paul continues on with his final instructions and exhortations to the church there at Thessalonica. And kids, as I read our text today, which is verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, uh, see if you can spot the two simple reasons why Paul says Christians have hope in the midst of death. And then we'll see if we can mention those in our introduction. But let's hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of God's trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we long for the comfort and encouragement in this wonderful text. That you might give us hope in the midst of perhaps a seemingly hopeless situation. That we might find faith when the experience is dark. That the light of Christ would be our guide. As we always look to Him, knowing that it's in Him that we find our life. So raise our gaze to Him with the mind and eyes of faith this day. That we might listen to Your Word eagerly and expectantly. That You might help me to preach as You say I must with clarity and with boldness. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I had one of those experiences a number of years ago where I woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of my phone ringing incessantly. And as I stared at the screen through the haze of sleepy eyes, I realized quickly that something must have gone terribly wrong. Because the screen was telling me that it was a member of the church where I was a pastor at the time. This member was calling me somewhere in and around 2 a.m. in the morning. And she would not be calling me if everything was okay. So I jolted up, picked up the phone, and answered the phone with the question, What's wrong? And it was simply a two-word answer that meant a lot was wrong. Don's died. So I got dressed quickly and raced off to the hospital, and I walked into the ER room or ER area just as Don's wife was walking down the hallway, and I walked up to her and gave her a hug, and she looked at me in the face, and she said, I don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense. For if you knew the situation, the story, it didn't make any sense. 
Here was a man that loved Jesus Christ with this kind of energetic and magnetic passion, seemingly taken in the prime of his life due to sudden heart failure. His wife still remains this committed Christian with an incredible witness to the Lord's mercy. And yet, she wasn't asking or saying these things with doubt, but with genuine grief. I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. And what do you say to such a person when you give them a hug in the middle of a hospital hallway, wanting to comfort them amidst genuine sorrow and hurt? What would the Bible want us to say in such a scenario? Well, what we have in our text today in 1 Thessalonians 4 is perhaps one of the most well-known answers to such situations and circumstances. The comfort that God means to give his people when a loved one dies in faith and in Jesus Christ. So it's a text, of course, that calls us to reckon with the reality of death. I have been in ministry long enough to know when you come to a text like this, you can preach to a room of this size with some degree of certainty and say 360 days or so will go by. And I probably will have to do a funeral for one of you. That if the Lord continues to tarry, Jesus spends decades and decades waiting to return. Kids, even you will die one day. And parents, you always want to be making sure that you're training your children, no matter their age, to realize death is on the way. Christians in centuries past understood this to be an incredible spur to sanctification and hope in the Lord and holiness before the Lord. Uh, oftentimes there was this Latin phrase that would get quoted, memento mori, which just means remember you must die. It was often inscribed over a picture of a skull. It was common enough that you might even find people, especially in the English-speaking world, that would have a skull placed on their desk at home, which wasn't this kind of macabre way of thinking about life. It just was a realistic way. But yes, if the Lord tarries, you too are going to die. You too will have to put someone you love into the ground. So what hope do you have in the midst of death? It's a text that calls us to realize death is on the way. As some of you know, perhaps many of you know, that we live in a culture today that wants to do everything to minimize the reality of death. Entire industries exist for you to know that death exists, but you really don't have to see it, hear it, experience it, look upon it. But the experience of the Thessalonian Christians in the first century was altogether different. Death confronted them often enough. Clearly it had struck this young congregation and Paul's writing to them that they might know the truth. They might know hope that Christ gives his people in the midst of death. And that really is the simple theme of these verses before us. Christ's hope in the face of death. And we'll notice two profound reasons, foundations for a Christian's hope. We'll see, first of all, that hope is rooted in Christ's resurrection. And then secondly, it's hope that's rooted in Christ's return. And before we turn to those reasons, I want us to make sure we realize where we are at this letter. If you weren't this last week, here's where we left off. You can glance up to verse 1 of chapter 4, and you'll see that verse begins with the word finally. And so Paul's beginning here, the final section 
of his teaching for the first three chapters. It's been pretty much continual thanksgiving and gratitude for God's work there at the young church in Thessalonica. And now he's shifting his attention in the final two chapters to ethical and theological concerns that were confronting the Thessalonians. And what he said last week is, finally then, church at Thessalonica, my desire for you is that you abound more and more in pleasing God, that you excel in holiness, you excel in love, you excel in hard work. And then he quickly moves in our text today, really through the end of verse 11 in chapter 5, from the practical to the eschatological, for things in this life to thinking about the things at the end of life. And it may appear, if you first were reading through this passage, if just chapter 4 was your text to read during the morning devotion, that there doesn't seem to be much of a connection between the first 12 verses and then verses 13 through 18. But previously, Paul has prayed at the end of chapter 3 that God would find the Thessalonians blameless in holiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's relatively seamless in Paul's mind to move from holiness to the second coming, which is exactly what he's doing in our text, where he first calls us to hope in Christ's resurrection. Notice how verse 13 begins. But we do not want you to be uninformed. Now, kids, I imagine that some of you, perhaps when your mother came home this week or your father came home this week, the first thing that you said when they came into the room was, Mama, guess what happened today? Or, or Daddy, guess what happened at school? Because, of course, something significant happened, and you don't want them to be uninformed about something significant that happened. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to do likewise with the Thessalonians. He doesn't want them to be uninformed about something significant that has happened Information that applies to their current circumstance, you see as the verse continues, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And I want you to see, first of all, from this one initial verse, that what the Apostle Paul is telling us is a couple of things about death, the first of which he's telling us how to think about death. Namely, he wants us to understand death is nothing more than a spiritual slumber. Do you see the language there? We don't know if it was church members that died, family members of church members that died, but he doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And it's language that surely he had gotten from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because you'll find Jesus using the same phrases talking about death of his disciples. It's not as though they're dying as much as it's they're falling asleep. And students, you might realize how understanding death is nothing more than falling asleep perhaps changes the terror that tends to go with death for many people. One of my favorite stories on this point is the story of how an old English evangelist in the 1920s interacted with a terminal diagnosis that he had received. His name was F.B. Meyer. He had just gone to his doctor and found out that he had this condition that meant he had only weeks to live. And so he went home and sat down at his writing desk and began to pin a letter to a close friend in which he wrote this, I have just heard to my great surprise that I have but a few days to live. It may be before this reaches you, I shall have entered the palace. Don't trouble to write. We shall meet in the morning. For saints... Dying is nothing more than to other saints. It's okay. We're going to meet in the morning. And those of you that have laid loved ones into the ground, 
If they have died in Jesus Christ, that's the comfort that Christ gives you. You'll meet them in the morning according to God's eternal counsel and comfort. So he's telling us how we ought to think about death. As though it's falling asleep. As surely as you will fall asleep tonight, or most of you fall asleep tonight. And you will do so expecting to rise in the morning. So sure as when the Christian body is laid in the ground. Expecting to rise when the final trumpet sounds. It's not just calling us, verse 13, how to think about death, but also how to feel about death. You see, it ends by telling us that he doesn't want us to grieve as others do who have no hope. And some of you in here today might be like those others. Ephesians 2 says, if you're apart from Jesus Christ, you have no hope in this world. That when death strikes and tragedy arrives, you genuinely have no foundation of expectant joy coming along the way. Such expectant joy is always found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you've come to Jesus Christ, turning from your sin and trusting in Him, Paul is saying is, you should grieve. That's an appropriate emotion when death strikes. He doesn't want to erase Christian's grief, but he does what? He wants to infuse it with the hope that belongs to what he says now comes in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, why can Christians hope in the midst of death? Well, because Christ has been raised from death. This is one of those many short statements that you'll find in the New Testament that encapsulates this good news that we call the gospel. It encapsulates in just a few simple words, doesn't it? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. I wonder if you can say, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very citadel of Christianity. It's the most fantastic thing about our faith. Unbelievers think it's fantastic fiction. But we know it's a fantastic fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And students, what you want to realize is that the resurrection of our Savior is what makes our faith altogether different. You might come across those in your school hallways. I would say that they're Mormons. Well, they don't look to a resurrected Joseph Smith to save them. You might come across someone who says they follow Buddha. But he or she doesn't look to a resurrected Buddha to save him or her. Muslims don't look to a resurrected Muhammad to save them. But Christians look to what? A crucified, slain, buried, and resurrected and ascended king to save them. We believe that he has risen. So he's calling us to hope in the power of Christ's resurrection. But you'll see as the text continues, not just the power, but the promise of Christ's resurrection. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we don't know exactly what it was that was striking the Thessalonian church at the time, but the context seems to make it likely that they were struggling to understand if you die before Jesus returns, that somehow you're disadvantaged compared to those who are alive when Jesus returns. Returns. And what Paul is comforting them with in verse 14 is, oh, Christ will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Why can he bring with him? Because Christ has been raised. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 and other New Testament texts teach. As certain as his resurrection was and is, so certain was 
people's resurrection be. It's why he can promise kids don't ever mention, don't ever forget these simple words like will. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, There's no hope in preaching that says he might bring with him those who fall asleep. There's no comfort found in declarations that he could bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But dear friends, your dear loved ones, if they die truly in Jesus Christ, they will come with the Savior because Christ has been raised. They will be raised too. Hope in Christ's resurrection now leads to the second part of our text, hope in Christ's return. Hope in Christ's return. In the 1730s and 40s, the celebrity in the colonies at the time was a preacher named George Whitfield. He had such eloquence and power in his preaching that one of the actors over on the other side of the Atlantic in England, actor and playwright named David Garrick, he said, Whitfield is so amazing in his sermons. He can make people weep. He can make people tremble just by saying the word Mesopotamia. And when that powerful preaching came over to the colonies, the Spirit used it to ignite the revival that brought the countless conversion of souls to Christ in a movement that the historians now call the Great Awakening. Well, what we now get in verse 15 through 17 is the Bible's Great Awakening. As Christ returns and brings to life those who have fallen asleep, notice verse 15, we declare this to you by a word from the Lord. He's underscoring for us what he's about ready to share, what he's about ready to give the Thessalonians there in that young church is nothing other than divine revelation. And the reason that's important is because some of you might know how in our time today, there are often books that pour forth from publishers thinking about the end of life, what comes after death. And rarely do those best-selling books root their instruction in the objective realities of divine revelation, but much more in the subjective experience of a supposed encounter of going to the next life with still remaining in this life. And what Paul is saying is here, you can trust what I'm getting ready to tell you. This came directly from the Lord. Maybe it was direct divine revelation that Paul received personally. Maybe just part of the apostolic tradition that would eventually give us the canon. Maybe, and probably much more likely, He's referring to those teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gospels related to his return. But you'll see as the verse continues, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I've heard a preacher quip even at the end of verse 15, the reason that those who have died will precede the ones who are alive is because they have six feet further to go to meet the Lord. Which surely is not true, because all that Paul is saying here is, I want you to know there's no disadvantage that anyone who has died has compared to those who are alive when Jesus returns. That they will see the same Savior. That they will enjoy the same kingdom. That they will have His presence equally forever. Which is why, as he continues this theme, he wants us to know that The Lord's return is a personal one. You see that in verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Kids, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is not going to send an escort. He's not going to send a servant. He's not even going to send a forerunner to announce his coming. 
That's going to be a personal return. The Lord himself, it's not just personal, it's, it's noticeable. You see this noisy clamor that ensues. Verse 16 continues, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. I'm not so sure we're supposed to take those as three distinct sounds as much as part of this one signal sound that belongs to the Savior's summons from heaven. It's not going to be something that happens in secret. When the Lord returns, everyone is going to know that he is returning to be with his people, which is why verse 16 ends, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. At this time in the first century, there was an expectation when an important dignitary would visit your city, that you would send out a delegation that often consisted of the most significant citizens in that city. They would kind of go, if you will, halfway out on this dignitary's journey to meet him there and bring him all the way back to the city. It was such a known reality in the first century world that it had a very technical term attached to it, this kind of a meeting going out there to bring him back. And it's that very technical term that the Apostle Paul uses in verse 17 to speak about meeting the Lord in the air. A few of you may know that this text has been the preoccupation of many people in our particular area of North Texas for some 80 to 100 years. But it's really not as complex as it can often be thought to be. It's simply telling us it's a noticeable return. And when the father summons his son to come one last time at the final return, the dead will rise and they will meet him in the sky, just as the citizens used to meet an ancient dignitary. And those who are alive will likewise rise to meet him in the skies. And together, Christ and all of his people will come back to earth. And that's where judgment comes. That's when the new heavens and the new earth, with all things being made new, finally arrives. And so therefore, what you want to think about related to a text that is speaking of the end of all things, and so often in the Christian life, we can come to such texts in Scripture and they tend to stoke our curiosity. What's the precise order of the events? Who's going to come first? Who's going to come second? Who will be last? What exactly is this noise that will announce his noticeable return? But almost always, when you have the New Testament and frankly any part of Scripture teaching about the climactic conclusion of human history when Christ returns... It's not something that's meant to stoke your confusion. It's not something that's meant to even elicit your curiosity. It's simply supposed to bring you comfort that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to return. And his people, they will be with him, dead and alive alike. And these are reasons why you can find hope in the midst of death. You can hope in Christ's resurrection, hope in Christ's return. I've talked to the number of you in the church that you're somewhat similar to me and you have this affinity for visiting cemeteries. Cemeteries where you don't have a friend or family member buried. You know, certainly as the fall months are rapidly coming upon us with the glorious weather that that brings in North Texas, it's the time of year where I tend to haunt cemeteries more than you would probably realize. 
when the weather is nice and ministry demands allow, you know, I'll take a Bible and maybe another good book, not much more, and just go sit on a bench or sit on the grass surrounded by tombstones. Because people like us need to remember we're going to die. And the tombstone says, you're going to be laid in the ground. Are you ready for it? So, you know, I'll read the Bible, pray, and sometimes just sit there thinking. And eventually you just wander around the tombstones. And you begin to notice the various inscriptions that mark those stones. And there's often all kinds of information that's illustrative that loved ones have etched into that stone. If you were to walk around the equivalent of an ancient cemetery in Paul's day and looked on that which was etched on stone, you would find very little statements of hope. You would find statements like this, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Such a different outlook than those who die in Jesus Christ. For example, just even one I looked at this week, not, of course, visiting it, but the tombstone of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great English preacher, says, Here lies the body of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, waiting for the appearing of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can die in hope. You can die without any hope. Christians are those who die in the hope of Christ's resurrection and return. And I want you to see two final things as we begin to close what this hope ought to do for you. Number one, this hope gives confidence for tomorrow. Gives confidence for tomorrow. As the Christian faith, in many ways, is so unique because it says this is not the end. Actually, for every single person, your life story, when you die, it's just like the preface to your life story coming to a close that opens up to a story full of endless chapters. Or each chapter is better than the one that preceded it. It gives you confidence that there is something even better on the other side. And what a tragedy it is for Christians who realize this is not the end. But so often live their life as this is the end. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, love the Lord, love your family, love the church. For when you die, it's going to be perfect. It gives you confidence about tomorrow, but secondly, finally, comfort about today. Look at how the text ends. Paul's simple summary instruction, application, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What do you need when a loved one dies? To grieve with hope. You need the comfort of God's truth. And recognize that what the Apostle Paul doesn't give a church here is a 12-step program to dealing with your grief. Here's the six-step sermon for how you can grieve with hope. He's saying, here's the truth that you need to know, that you might not grieve without hope. What you need most is instruction that you not be uninformed. And that very teaching, that very instruction, that very word is meant to give you comfort. Can you point to a passage of Scripture that's ever given you particular comfort? Can you say that even you had the chance to comfort someone in your life this week with the truth of Scripture? Perhaps you might be able to comfort someone this day with the truth of Scripture. 
For of course know that our confidence, our comfort, is all rooted in Jesus Christ himself. He is the crescendo of all of it. This confidence about tomorrow, this comfort we can feel today. Look at the end of verse 17. So we will always be with the Lord. That's the sum and substance of all your hope. After death, all those who die in Christ, what do they get? But his permanent and perfect presence. From everlasting to everlasting, you'll see the king in his beauty. Grieve not when your loved ones have died. Grieve not without hope. Christ has been raised. Christ will return. He's all the comfort and confidence you need in the face of death. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would strengthen us in the hope of Jesus Christ. We know that there are those in the room today who are mourning and grieving the loss of a loved one, even from just a few weeks ago, perhaps others a few months ago, and many even a few years ago. Lord, let them find the hope that's found in Jesus Christ that we might know his blessings that belong to all of his people for all eternity. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.